All right, it's good to be with you, even though the reason I'm here totally sucks, right? <laughs> uh, with Chris getting COVID, uh, I don't know, he texted me at what, six something last night. Hey, you know, um, so I volunteered to fill in. Um, <clears throat> so what we're going to do today is the sermon from the porch this morning. <laughs> so um, at the porch, we're doing our series going through the Gospel of Luke. We started in 2020, and now we are in Luke 20. So this has taken a while. We're going to hopefully finish um, by the end of the year. But let me just open us up uh, with prayer. So Father God, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for the uh, miracle it is that 2,000 years after these words were written, that we could, we still have them, and we can we can sit and study them together and to hear from you. And I pray, Lord, that this, um, this time that we spend in the Gospel of Luke would be powerful and that you would show us your heart and you would help us to understand the Gospel a little bit more um, than we did before we started. So like I pray probably almost every time I preach, Lord, I just pray that this time would be about you and your words and not so much about me and mine. So just be with us now. Send your spirit upon us. Amen. All right, if anybody here has kids, I don't know who has kids. or But if you've been around kids, or if you remember being a kid, you remember when they would say, uh, you're not the boss of me. You guys know that? You remember that from, what's at the heart of that, right? When a kid says, you're not the boss of me, what's really going on? Is what they're saying is, uh, you can't tell me what to do. Why, why do kids say that? Right? Because human nature, right? because of our fallen sinful nature, we don't like it when people tell us what to do. Isn't that true? We always kind of buck at authority. We don't like authority in our lives. We don't like the idea. It rubs us the wrong way. It's why you'll hear people in our culture say things like, um, I, I guarantee all of you have heard this, you know, well, the, the money's not great, but at least I get to be my own boss. Right? Has anybody ever heard that? Basically, what they're saying is, I'd rather be broke than have somebody tell me what to do, right? Because it, that's really at the heart, right, is we, we are very selfish and we don't like authority. But here's the thing. Not all authority is bad, right? There's such a thing as good authority. Have you ever had a good boss? Anybody? No, nobody? Just me? I'm trying to think if I've had one, right? Uh, if you've ever had a good boss, you know what that's like. They create structure. They give you stuff to do. They, and then they help you do it. And it's very, it takes a lot of stress out of your life when you have a great boss. Or if you remember back to high school or college or something, uh, do you remember ever having a good teacher that really did the same thing, right? They gave you structure, and they used their authority to help you actually learn something. Um, I had a teacher in high school. Her name was Don Mulliken, Miss Mulliken. You know, it's funny. Her husband's name was Don, too. It was Don and Don. Uh, it cracks me up. Anyway. And I had her when I was a freshman, and I hated her guts because she was always telling me what to do, and her class was kind of hard, and she was really mean. And then I had her as a senior when I was a little more mature, and I was like, oh, she's a great teacher. <laughs> right? And she kind of ended up being my favorite teacher from high school. But what she did was uh, she actually liked teaching, you know, which is a big plus for a teacher. But when she used her authority, it was not just to annoy us or because she was selfish or power hungry. It's because she wanted us to learn the stuff that we were supposed to learn. And she was really great at it. Or I had some coaches that were like that, like if you ever played sports, you know. A great coach exercises authority to teach you how to shoot a basketball, right, not just to be mean. Um, or maybe some of you even had excellent parents who used authority in ways that really helped you grow and mature in Christ. Um, so there is such a thing as good authority. Today what we're going to read, we're going to talk about, is the idea of how Jesus is the perfect example of authority in our lives. So when you had a good teacher, that good teacher was just a small picture of what a perfect teacher would be, what Jesus is. Jesus is the perfect teacher, the perfect boss, the perfect parent, the one who gets to exercise authority in our lives. And we're going to talk about how we sometimes bucket that. We still don't like authority. So let's take a look at this passage. Um, it's printed there in your booklet's um, we're just going to kind of walk through this section, these first 19 verses of Luke 20. So one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. So uh, you guys haven't been reading with us in Luke, but let me just set the stage real quick. Uh, in the last chapter, we read uh, the triumphal entry. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem, you know, Palm Sunday, palm branches, Hosanna in the highest, the whole shebang, right? 
Uh, Sunday afternoon, that happens. He walks into the city. He takes a look around, and then he goes out of the city, and he spends the night. Monday, he comes back to the city, and this was the last sermon we did uh, in the book of Luke, was he comes in, and what he sees is the, the place, the part of the temple that was supposed to be where Gentiles could come and worship had been turned into this marketplace. And Jesus goes absolutely berserk, and he starts flipping tables and, you know, uh, driving people out. Like, he gets really upset about this, because this is where the Gentiles are supposed to work. And so what we said in that one was, you know, um, if you ever ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Sometimes walking into a room and flipping all the tables is one of the options, right? So that's what Jesus did. Then he takes off. So the next thing that happens, Luke says one day, this is actually Tuesday, what's going on here, um, is uh, Jesus was, so one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. So I like these two ideas, the way Luke puts this. He was teaching and he was preaching. Now, as pastors, I'm sure Chris does this too. Uh, we use the words teaching and preaching almost interchangeably, right? You know, sometimes I'll say, oh, I'm going to teach at First Pres. I'm, I'm preaching at First Pres. But I think the idea there is actually there's kind of two different things going on. And both of these things should be happening. This is kind of a little sidebar. We'll get to the, back to this a little bit later. But um, both of those things should be happening in a sermon. Now, the teaching part, what is that? That's just sort of bringing the facts. So before a preacher can stand up and tell you what a passage means to you, we have to understand what the passage even says. That's kind of the preaching, I'm sorry, the teaching part. But then the preaching part is sort of hammering those facts home, taking what this passage says and saying, this is how this applies to you. And on Sundays, what we want from preachers is kind of both of those things, right? Preaching without teaching is just standing there and yelling at people. But then teaching without preaching is just passing on information. It's not gospel life. And so when we come together and we read this stuff, we really want to be doing both of these things. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's spending some time teaching, and he's probably going through the Old Testament, and he's talking about you know, the Messiah and the kingdom of God and a lot of the stuff that you see like in the Sermon on the Mount. He's probably going over a lot of that material again. But then he's also preaching, right? He's saying, this is how this applies to you guys. He's, he's calling for change in people's lives. He's aiming at people's hearts. Now, these are the two things Jesus is doing. Where is he doing it? Did you notice that? He's doing it in the temple. Now, the idea of <clears throat> teaching in the temple doesn't, isn't really that impressive to us. We think, oh yeah, Jesus was probably in the temple a lot. But to ancient Jewish folks in the first century, this was kind of a big deal. It'd be like if you had a... Um, group of lawyers in a room, and then one of them said, oh yeah, last week I was, you know, uh, arguing in front of the Supreme Court. All the other lawyers would go, ooh, Supreme Court, you know, I think, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, because um, I have a soul. No, I'm just kidding. Lawyers are fun to make fun of in service, you know, it's low-hanging. I always say, I, I told this this morning, too, um, when I was the pastor here at DPC, I made a lot of lawyer jokes, because we had a few lawyers, and then every time the church needed a lawyer, we were like, hey, lawyers, help us out, you know, and they were always great, and they did, you know, anyway. Uh, so, um, but that's the idea, right? Preaching, um, sorry, like presenting in front of the Supreme Court is kind of, you know, it's a big deal. It's the same teaching in the temple. Now, <clears throat> sorry, remember where Jesus has come from, though. Uh, the city of Nazareth was this backwater little town where nobody important ever came from. To the point that you remember when uh, in the Gospel of John, when Nathaniel finds out, somebody says, you know, I found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. He goes, <laughs> Anything good come from Nazareth? That was his response, right? Nothing good came from this little town, right? And so the idea that a great prophet uh, or somebody who could eventually end up teaching in the temple was, would come from a place like this was pretty much unheard of. And in fact, it was even unheard of to the people in Jesus's hometown. Um, way back in Luke, we, I, you know, at the porch, we read this story where uh, Jesus is baptized by John. He goes into the desert for the temptation. The very next story after that is he goes home. He goes back to Nazareth. And he goes into the temple. And he picks up the scroll from Isaiah. I want to read this to you. <clears throat> he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because, sorry, did I say temple? He's in the synagogue at his hometown. This, and he picks up the Isaiah scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, 
Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this is what happens. Jesus goes home, and he gets to teach in his hometown church. And he gets up, and he reads this passage that everybody knew was about the Messiah. And he sits down, which was like their version of standing up behind the pulpit. I like that better, by the way. You should all stand up for this. I should have to sit down, but I have bad knees. Uh, And he goes, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Basically, hey, guys, guess what? I'm the Messiah. And you know what they all said? Isn't that Joseph's kid? (laughs) And they all laughed at him, right? This is Joseph and Mary's kid. He's telling us he's the Messiah. But they were curious because they had heard he had done all these miracles. So they go, hey, miracle monkey, do your miracles. All right, do some miracles for me. And Jesus goes, oh, man, you know, the prophet, even in his hometown, you know, gets no love. That's that whole passage. And they get mad at him. And then he talks about Gentiles coming into the kingdom and stuff. Then they try to kill him, and he has to, like, escape out of town. So here's the thing. Even in his own hometown, Jesus wasn't really accepted as this great, uh, as this great teacher. What schooling does he have? What training does he have? Right? And this is, if you remember, this is an honor and shame culture. And we don't super understand this in the West, but there's two things going on here. The first thing is people seeing Jesus teaching in the temple would have thought this. He doesn't come from the right stock. Right? Group honor was a very real thing in the first century. And the group that he came from didn't have the honor in this society to say, okay, now you can preach in the temple. Now you can teach in the temple. That's the first thing. The second thing is, so what Jesus is doing, and this was possible, is you could kind of extend how much honor your clan uh, was given. You could sort of jump out of your circle and say, this is why I deserve more honor than what you're giving me. And so that's what Jesus is doing by teaching in the temple. And so today what's going to happen is the leaders are going to confront him about it. The leaders of the Jewish religion are going to confront him about it. Um, And then if you read the very next passage... Today's passage is they confront him about it. Um, The next passage after this is they have something called an honor contest, where um, you can go read it later, but it's like an ancient theological version of a rap battle, right? They get into it, and, you know, the crowd gets to decide who wins. So today what we're looking at is the confrontation. So let's keep going. The, The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up, and they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? So the group... There is described as the chief priests and the scribes, which was just sort of, well, it's not really shorthand because it's actually longer than saying it, but this was another way to refer to the Sanhedrin. If you've heard of this group, the Sanhedrin, they were the highest ruling council in the land of Israel at this time. And uh, they were set up during the intertestamental times, and they were modeled after the council of elders that Moses put together uh, in Numbers chapter 11. So basically what happened was God told Moses, hey, go get 70 guys to help you do this help you run the country. And so the Sanhedrin was 70 plus 1, or the original council was 70 guys plus Moses. So the Sanhedrin is 70 plus the high priest. It's sort of modeled after that. 24 of these guys were called chief priests. What that meant was the system of worship was very complicated, and there were a lot of priests who rotated in and out. 24 of those guys were sort of the dudes who were in charge of the whole temple. Everything that happened in the temple was up to these 24 guys. Uh, the other was 24 minus 70, I mean, 70 minus 20, 46, is that right? I never passed a math class. I think 46. We're made up of scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Uh, there were a lot of, most of these guys were actually Sadducees. By the time of Jesus, this group had become notoriously corrupt. Okay, so what happened is, uh, the way every, and everybody knew it, they, instead of being a spiritual group, they had become this political group who did anything to keep their power. And the Roman government who was kind of in charge of everything, who, you know, the occupying force, they actually appointed the high priest. And the high priest then appoint, you know, kind of ran the rest of the council. So this group did not have a great reputation. This is the group that in a few chapters is going to kill Jesus. This is the group that at the beginning of the book of Acts is constantly clashing with the disciples. You know, they're bringing Peter and John in, and then they bring all the disciples in. They beat him at one point. Uh, a couple chapters later, in Acts chapter 7, they take Stephen and they stone him to death. They get so mad at Stephen. Uh, at the end of the book of Acts, in Acts 23, they get in a big fight with Paul uh, when Paul is in Jerusalem. So this, these guys are never portrayed in a very good light. And so they, this group sends some representatives, and they tell Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? So what do they mean, these things? Two, there's probably two things going on here. One, they're still mad he came in and he flipped all the tables yesterday. Okay, this is a pretty bold 
statement. Imagine if some guy walked into church and goes, you guys do communion wrong, and he flips the table over. Somebody here would be like, uh, who are you? Right, what, you know, Gav, our church, man, we know what, you know, that's kind of what's going on. The second thing is what we just talked about with Jesus uh, teaching and preaching when he didn't really have the authority to do that. And so that's what they ask him. By what authority are you doing this? You're stepping out of your place. The, the question itself is an insult. It's implied you don't have the authority to do these things. And so we're asking. Um, <clears throat> it's one thing, Jesus, to go out in the, you know, the Sermon on the Mount in the grass in the middle of nowhere and teach all of your country bumpkin friends. This isn't, this isn't Galilee, dude. This is Jerusalem. This is the temple. You've gone too far. And it's another slap in the face in honor-shame culture for them to ask this question publicly, right? They, they did this in front of everybody. They didn't pull Jesus aside. Hey, did you go to, you know, like, what's your training? What, what authority do you think you have to do this stuff? Um, this was meant to shame him. So imagine, though, like, let me give you an illustration. Imagine there's a crime scene. You guys watch that show, The First 48? Am I the only one that's obsessed with this show? It's pretty great. All right, you should totally watch this show. It's awful, actually. So you know, you know Law & Order, the detectives. and Okay, so this is Law & Order, except it's a reality show. They follow uh, murder detectives for the first 48 hours after a murder. Because basically, if you don't catch a guy within 48 hours, it's almost impossible, I think. You know? And then they just give up, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, imagine there's a crime scene, right? Like in my show, The First 48. And they've got the tape, you know, the caution tape or the police line tape up. And they've got those little yellow cards on the ground everywhere. That's, these are the shell casings. And there's stuff circled on the wall. You know, it's a whole crime scene, right? Now, imagine some guy just walks up, tears the tape down, starts walking around, taking notes, moves one of those little yellow cards at some point, one of the, you know, starts ordering cops around. Go stand over there. Right? Get out of my way. I need to see this thing, you know. At some point, one of these cops is going to say, uh, who are you? Now, there's two ways that could go. The guy could say something like, uh, I'm a reporter. And then what would they say to him? This is a crime scene. Get out of here. You're not supposed to be here. You don't have the authority to be here. The second thing he could say is, I'm with the FBI. And then all the cops go, oh, he's allowed to be here. The FBI outranked, you know, they're taking over the case or something. I actually have no idea how that works, but I assume they would be. I, from TV, they go, oh, that's important. Yeah, this guy's important, right? Uh, but like Jesus, that's what, if you're, if you're here in this time or reading this story, that's what you kind of expect. What's going to happen? Is Jesus going to say, here's my authority, or are they going to kick him out? Which one of these two things is going to happen? But like Jesus always does, he chooses option number three. Instead, he goes up to them and he says, let me see your badge. Right, he walks in the crime scene. They're like, who are you? He's like, who are you? That's what he does. Look at verse 3. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Jesus almost never directly answers the questions that people ask him. Have you ever noticed that? He always answers the question underneath the question. Um, I don't know if I've ever used this illustration with you guys. I've used it a couple times at the porch. But the example of this is like, my wife has a cat. I don't like the cat. And one day I asked her, how long do cats live? You know what she didn't say to me? She didn't say cats live. Actually, I have no idea how long cats live. What is it, 15 years or something? She didn't say cats live 15 years. She said, shut up. You have to put up with Spot. That's the name of the cat. Because she knew the question underneath the question. Right? She was answering my actual question. That's what Jesus does here. And so what he does is he says to them, hey, do you guys remember John the Baptist? Was, he, was his ministry... And his, you know, his prophetic ministry, the baptisms, was that something God sent him to do or not? Basically, he asks them, when you guys did this honor authority check with John the Baptist, did you get it right? And so look at, they have a problem now. Watch this, verse 5. They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say he's from heaven, he will say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say, well, he's from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they didn't know where he came from. Right, here's the dilemma. They did not get along with John. You know, at one point, um, they sent people out to John. Uh, in Matthew 3, they sent the same kind of thing that they're doing with Jesus. They sent a delegation out, the Sanhedrin, to sort of evaluate the ministry of John. And what happened was they got in a big fight with him. And he called him a brood of vipers. He told them to repent and to flee the wrath that was going to come upon them. You know, John was not a fan. 
And so they publicly, very publicly, denounced John. Um, the problem is, uh, everybody loved John. He was wildly popular. At one point, the Gospels sort of using exaggerated language say, everybody from Jerusalem and Judea went out to go see John and be baptized. You know, it's kind of like saying, um, I don't know, everybody went out to see Weezer concert tonight. You know, there's 200,000. Man, we should have gone to Weezer, by the way. I didn't know Weezer was playing. I'm a big Weezer fan. Just kidding. Anyway, everybody went out to see John, right? And so he's so popular that they, they have this problem. This is a no-win situation for them. Because here's the options. Option A, they admit in front of all these people now that John's ministry was from God and that they were wrong about him. The problem then is why should anybody trust what they think about Jesus now? You got it wrong with John, so why should we trust you now? Option B is to say that he wasn't from God when everybody clearly believed that he was. So again, everybody would say, well, you were wrong about John. Why should we trust you now? This is genius, what Jesus does here. He gives them, he throws it back in their face. There's no way out. And so what do they do? They cop out. They answer, I don't know. Right? Have you ever, like uh, with kids, this happens all the time. Did you color on the wall? Right? There's no good answer to that question. Everybody knows you colored on the wall. This happened the other day at my house, actually. That's where this comes from. The kids, they, they colored on my wall. It's killing me, right? And what was the answer? I don't know. <laughs> right? This is what they do. They act like a bunch of children. So Jesus, verse 8, Jesus says to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love it. Jesus brings their hypocrisy to light. If you can't judge John, who obviously was sent from God, what makes you think you get to judge me? You see, they weren't doing any of this for the right reasons. The actual questioning of Jesus and where his authority comes from was probably a good thing. Because God had consistently throughout the Old Testament uh, called his leaders to root out false teaching and false prophets. And he's always upset with the leaders in the, in the prophetic books. These guys come and they're very upset with the leaders of Israel for putting up with idolatry, putting up with false teaching. It's your job to protect the sheep from the wolves. So that's what they're doing here. That, and that's what they're supposed to do. So Jesus is not calling them out for doing their job. He's calling them out for doing their job for all the wrong reasons. Right? The whole incident here with John points that out. Because when a true prophet comes, what are these people supposed to do, these leaders? They're supposed to tell everybody that's a real prophet. You should go. You should listen to him. They should lift him up and support his ministry. But what happened when a real prophet did come along? They hated his guts and they clashed with him. And then, you know, them and Herod, they had him murdered. They had him executed. You know, the leaders had him executed. This shows what's going on deep inside. They had no intention of actually serving the Lord. They were only serving themselves. Because if a real prophet were to come along, all of a sudden they wouldn't be the highest authority in the land. That prophet would be. And so real prophets then were a threat to their control over the people. And so Jesus brings this hypocrisy to light. He says, you don't care about God. You don't care about the truth. The truth, all you care about is yourself. And so then what he does is in front of all the people, he hammers this home with a parable, the parable of the wicked tenants, verse 9. So he began to, he began to tell them a parable. A man planted a vineyard. He let it out to tenants. He went to another country for a long while. So the Old Testament is full of language, where the people of God are portrayed using the picture of a vineyard, vines. I'm not going to go through all the verses here. But basically, when Jesus starts talking about a vineyard, everybody in this audience, you know, in this group here that was listening to him, would have known exactly what he was talking about. Okay, that's the people of God. That's the people of Israel. And he uses this picture of tenant farming. Now, tenant farming was very common in the first century. I mean, the idea is pretty self-explanatory. One guy owns the farm or the vineyard. And he moves away. He doesn't live anywhere near it. And so he lets some people work the land, and then he expects part of the profits from the land. Now, you have to remember, too, though, this is a very different time. If the owner of the vineyard lived very far away, communication with the people in the vineyard would be very tough. Right? They didn't have Zoom. They didn't have Skype. They didn't text. There was no WhatsApp. Right? How would he find out what was going on in the vineyard is he would have to send somebody carrying flesh and blood, a real actual person, to go carry a message. And that's what happens in verse 10. So when the time came, 
he sent servants to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. The tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. All right, let's, let's take this parable. Let's jump this to the 21st century. I'm assuming none of you are farm landlords, so we don't super understand this. Let's tell this in a way we might understand a little better. Imagine you took a big chunk of your savings, and you took it over to some sort of an investment manager. After a few years, you know, it goes by. You're checking online or whatever. You get statements. I don't know. I never had any money. I don't know how that works. But uh, you, <laughs> you check your portfolio, and you realize, whoa, I've made a lot of money. So you're going to collect your money, so you need to get a cashier's check or something from your investment manager. Pretend there's no wire transfers for this illustration, okay? There's a lot of holes in this illustration, by the way. So what you have to do is you send over your assistant. Oh, yeah, you have three assistants in this illustration. You're very important in this illustration. So you send over your assistant to the money manager's office to pick up a cashier's check. When your assistant shows up at the guy's office, the investment manager punches him in the face grabs him by the scruff of the neck and throws him out of his office. There's no way I'm giving that guy his money. Now, in our culture, people would write about this on Facebook and it would go viral. I can't believe this money manager, you know. This would be shocking in our culture. In the first century honor shame culture, this would be doubly shocking. This This idea of not only are they stealing, but they're dishonoring the landlord and saying, uh, basically, he doesn't deserve this stuff that's due to him. Uh, and dishonoring his family. So verse 11, and he sent another servant, but they also beat him up and treated him shamefully. They sent him away empty-handed, and he sent a third. This one they also wounded, which is more serious than just beating him up, and they cast him out. All right, so now imagine our story again. The money It gets back to the you that the money manager beat up your assistant. So you think, well, maybe something else is going on here. My assistant is pretty mouthy. Right. Maybe he said something, got in this guy's nerve. I'll send a second assistant. So you go to your second assistant, because remember, you're very important, and you have three assistants. And you send your second guy, and he shows up. Same thing happens. He gets beat up. Comes back. No money. Black eye. So you think, you know what I'll do? I think the third time's a charm. The third assistant will work. So this time you send your third assistant, because you're very important, you have three assistants. This time, though, that guy's really mad, and he takes his letter opener and he stabs a guy. So then the guy comes back all stabbed up, you know. Now you have to pay to get this guy stitches. So now you're out of pocket for some stitches. There's no, there's no cashier's check, right? In reality, nobody would send three people. First guy gets beat up, what do you do? You call the cops, right? You get upset. The picture that's being painted here is of a very gracious God. God with the people of Israel. He sent a prophet. And they beat him up and they killed him or whatever. So God goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send another prophet. And I'm going to send another prophet. And he did this over and over and over again. He sends Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zephaniah, right? He sends all these guys and Elijah and Elisha. And none of it, you know, they don't really listen to any of these prophets. Look at verse 13 then. So what does God do? Right. What does the, 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 the uh, owner of the vineyard do? And the owner of the vineyard said, well, what should I do? Gets an idea. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. So now this investment manager is beating up three of your best employees. Who else can I send to go get this cashier's check? I know. Right in the story, what happens? He sends his son. I'll send my son. And in the parable, Jesus uses... The exact phrase that's used at the transfiguration and his baptism, right? My beloved son. When God calls down, this is my beloved son. Verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, oh, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They wanted the inheritance, so they killed the son. In the, in the parable, here's the thought process. The landlord is probably an older man, you know. And he lives really far away. And you have to remember, back then, there was no city hall database. It's like you can go look up who owns what property, right? Nobody really knew who owns this farm or this vineyard. So they feel like, okay, if we kill the son, the owner will eventually die, and then nobody will own this vineyard, and it'll sort of default to us, and maybe nobody will notice. And we will, we will get this piece of property, 
And so that's what they do. They kill the son. What then, it says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, in our story and in our culture, that's actually a good question. What would you do? You, find, you know, you send your son to the investment manager's office. He pulls out a gun. He shoots him, drags his body out to the, the alley behind, you know, behind the office, and somebody finds him a couple of days later. The cops call and say, hey, we found your son. You know, and you're like, oh, I know we did. It was the investment manager. I already beat up three of my guys. And the cops, well, there's no proof. What would you do? That's actually a question for us. In the first century, this was not a question. Right? This was very much like just, of course, everybody knows what this guy was going to do. You'd go bananas and you would get revenge. Look at verse 16. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is the obvious answer to anybody in this culture. Right? He's going he's to get revenge. He's going to get justice. So look at the three parts to this answer. One, he will, this time there's nobody showing up for him. That's the first part. The landlord is coming himself. The second part is <clears throat> he's going to destroy the tenants. Now, there's probably layers to this with Jesus talking about the, the he's talking, remember, to the Sanhedrin folks. And he's saying the judgment is coming. But one of the ways prophecy works in the Bible is, um, like, have you ever driven towards a mountain range? Like, I, a couple years ago, I rode my bike to the Rockies and up and over the Rockies. My motorcycle is pretty great. Um, and when you're, like, in Denver, you can see the Rockies out there. And when you look out there, it just looks kind of flat. There's, like, mountains and mountains and mountains. As you get closer, though, you realize, oh, those mountains are actually pretty far apart. And you have to go up and over the mountains into a valley and up and over a mountain into a valley. And that's kind of the illustration theologians use to talk about prophecy. A lot of prophecy in the Bible is sort of looking into the future, kind of flat like this. And the closer we get to it, we see, oh, there's actual multiple fulfillments of this prophecy. This is one of those instances, because what's happening here is Jesus, when he says, you know, the, the, the farmers, the tenants are going to be destroyed, uh, which is very strong language. It's probably a hint at the destruction of the temple where he's standing in 70 A.D., uh, when Titus and the Romans came in and sacked the city of Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. But there's probably a second layer. There's a mountain behind it talking about the end times judgment. God is going to judge you. He gave you this job to lead his people in their spiritual life, and you're completely blowing it. I have a tattoo on my arm. Uh, well, this one's my Star Trek tattoo. This one is James 3.1. And that verse says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Right? There is a, a heavy weight to being a leader of the people of God, and these guys are completely blowing it. And so this judgment is coming for them. But then the third part of this, so he's going to come himself, he's going to destroy these tenants, and then he's going to give the vineyard to others. This is a major theme in the New Testament. God is taking the kingdom away from these leaders, and he hands it over to Gentiles. And these Gentiles, are Romans talks about this, right, are grafted into the kingdom of God. Um, and, you know, we're not going to get into this a bunch now. But that was wildly offensive to these leaders. And you can see that. It says at the end of this verse, end of verse 16, when they heard this, they said, surely not, which is just a very polite way to say, you know, not going to happen. Like, they're, they're very upset. No way. They're very mad at Jesus. This is not one of those parables where at the end of the parable, everybody that heard the parable shows up to Jesus, you know, oh, they pretend like they understood it. Oh, that's a good point. And then they wait 20 minutes, they go to Jesus. Hey, what did that mean? You know, that seems to happen a lot, right? The disciples never have any idea what Jesus is talking about. This is not one of those parables. This is very easy to interpret parable. And everybody that was standing there knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. You guys have rejected the prophets. You've, you're going to kill the son. And now God is going to take this kingdom and give it to somebody else. And so they're very angry. And verse 17, but Jesus looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. All right. Have you ever guys, have you guys ever seen like um, one of those songs? I think there's a YouTube channel that does this where they mash up songs. So they take two songs and they kind of blend them together. Um, like I think Jay-Z and Linkin Park back in the day did a whole album that was like a half a Jay-Z song, half a Linkin Park song. Um, this is what Jesus does. He takes three Old Testament quotes 
and he mashes them up into one quote. So three quotes from this Greek Bible called the Septuagint, and he mashes them together. I want to read to you these three quotes. The first one is from Psalm 118. So this was actually part of the psalms that they would sing as they're coming up into Jerusalem for Passover. So everybody knew this psalm because they just sung it like a couple of days before. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The second quote comes from Isaiah 8, 14, and 15. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be, they shall be snared and taken. And then the third quote is from Daniel 2, chapter 30, uh, sorry, 2 verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out uh, by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them into pieces. So Jesus takes these three quotes. He creates this one sort of super quote. Now, I'm sure somewhere somebody has written a doctoral thesis on exactly how these three quotes relate to each other and how Jesus uses them and quotes them from the Septuagint. We're not going to get that in depth here. We're going to take the big picture. It's, uh, the big idea is pretty plain, right? It's the picture of a cornerstone. Now, you can imagine building the temple. The way it worked was they took these giant rocks. I should have looked up how big they were. I feel like, I don't know, 10 feet by 10 feet or so. They were big, giant pieces of stone. You know, and they dragged them from the quarry, which was a pretty far ways away from Jerusalem, uh, up to the Temple Mount. And they're like Legos, and they had to kind of put them together. And uh, they had to know which stone went where. Now, again, let's jump this and do an illustration that maybe makes will make a little more sense for us. Imagine that... Um, you need a bookshelf because you have so much books like me, right? That's your problem. Your whole house is just stacked up with books, and your wife is always complaining about it. Why is all these books? So you're like, oh, I'm going to buy a bookshelf. So you go to Ikea, and you buy a bookshelf. And you open up a box. You know how hard it is to get the stuff out of that Ikea box? You know what I mean? Uh, 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 you know, so I don't know, after a half hour, you finally get all the stuff out of that stupid Ikea box. You lay it out on the ground. At the beginning of those Ikea instructions, which never have words, by the way, are words really that hard? You know, can you just write what I'm supposed to do? Uh, but they have those little pictures. And you look at the pictures, and you lay all your stuff out, and you realize, I have an extra piece. Like, there's this board. I don't know what to do with it. So what you do is you take it, and you throw this piece in the fire. You have to pretend we have fireplaces in San Francisco for this stupid illustration. You throw it in the fire. Now, as the fire is warming your living room, you start to put your IKEA furniture together. And then you realize, oh, the instructions were wrong. That piece I just threw away is kind of the main part of the bookshelf. <laughs> And so you're bummed. You have rejected the main piece. Now, there's this story that I kind of looked around. I don't know the, uh, the exact like, historicity of this, like if this really happened or if it was just sort of in a, uh, like a tale that was going around at this time. But uh, what I read was a lot of people at this time at least believed this story. This might be what Jesus was referring to. But the story goes like this, that when they were building the temple, this is exactly what they did. They got all the pieces up to the temple mount, and then they looked at this one piece, and they're looking at the Ikea instructions, and they're like, I don't know what this piece is. So boom, they kick it down the side of the mountain that the temple mount is on. It rolls down the back of the hill. And then they all get started, and they go, oh, that's the cornerstone. That's like the main piece of the temple. <laughs> so they had to go all the way down in the valley and bring it back up, and it was a huge hassle. This is why, by the way, these verses about cornerstone, why like one out of three churches in America is called cornerstone. You ever notice that? Uh, you know, Jesus is the cornerstone, this idea. So anyway... Um, this, is the, this is what Jesus is talking about in this quote. You guys have rejected. You've thrown away the most important piece. You took the center of your bookshelf and you threw it in the fire. Look at verse 18 again. Look what he says. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So uh, sequentially, this makes no sense, right? But what Jesus is saying is he's kind of mashing up two images. Some of you are going to trip over this cornerstone and that's going to really stink. And then after you trip on it, it's going to fall on you. That doesn't really make sense, but you get the idea, right? Is um, Again, it's that dual-layer prophecy. The stone is going to crush you. The 70 AD stuff and the end times judgment. So how do you think these leaders took Jesus' parable, his talking about this cornerstone? Wow, Jesus, you're right. We should repent and believe the gospel, and we should follow you and let you be our Lord. No, that's not what happened at all. Look at verse 19. So the scribes and the chief priests, that's the Sanhedrin, the delegation from the Sanhedrin, they sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Yeah, no duh. Uh, but they feared the people. So they wanted 
They wanted to kill him right there, but they couldn't because he was so popular. It's just like with the John question. They couldn't answer because John was so popular. They feared the people. So they need a plan, and they're going to come up with a plan in the next couple of chapters. You can read ahead in Luke. Uh, Spoiler, right? They come up with a plan. They kill Jesus, and then he comes back from the dead. Uh, It's a pretty great story, actually, if you've not read the whole thing, you know. Um, It's been out for 2,000 years. I think I can spoil it. Anyway, so that's the story. That's the passage we have today. So you can see the flow of the story, right? These religious leaders, they come to Jesus, and they ask him, what authority do you have to teach in the temple and to flip these tables to judge our way of doing temple system, right? They challenge Jesus publicly. So what does he do? First, he brings their hypocrisy to light. You can't really judge me because you're not doing it for the right reasons, and you're terrible at your job, and you've, you know, you're selfish. And then step two, he tells this very harsh parable about them losing their place in the kingdom and the kingdom being handed over to other people. And so you can see here the teaching, we were talking about teaching and preaching earlier, the teaching part of this passage is pretty easy. It's not that hard to look at this and understand what it is, that, what happened and why it happened and all that sort of stuff. The question gets a little more tricky when we start talking about what does this mean for us in the 21st century? How do we take this text and apply it to ourselves? You see, it's really easy for us to look back with some sort of righteous judgment on these leaders. They're the bad, this is how we read the Bible. They're the bad guys. If I was there, I would have been one of the good guys, right? Because I am one of the good guys. That's what we think. The problem with that attitude is, is it, it's exactly the kind of attitude that Jesus is condemning in these leaders. It's the same attitude. I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And I'm the center of the world and everybody else needs to be on the margins. It's a selfish attitude. I think we should look at this story maybe and be challenged with this idea. Maybe I'm a little bit more like the scribes and the chief priests than I care to admit. Right? Because we're all selfish, aren't we? This is our fallen condition. This is our fallen, sinful, broken human nature that we've inherited from Adam and Eve, right? We are, we're busted and we're selfish. If you don't believe me that you're selfish, think about this. Everything that happens in the entire world, the first thing that you think is, how is this going to affect me, right? It, it, and then sometimes you fight that and you go, oh, that was a terrible thought. Like the other day I saw a thing on Reddit of this guy was saying he was on an airplane and somebody on the airplane died. You know, I don't know. I guess this happens in the air sometimes. So they made an emergency landing, and then everybody was going to miss their connecting flights. And some guy in the back shouted, how is this an emergency if he's already dead? <laughs> right? Now, that's funny because it's, the guy said the part you're not supposed to say out loud. He said it very out loud, you know? And you think about it, you probably would have had the same thought, right? You think some guy just died, and now I have to be mildly inconvenienced. That's how we think. Or how many times have you been driving and stuck in traffic and you're just like really annoyed? <sighs> I'm going to be 10 minutes late. And then you drive past a horrible accident. And even then, what do you think? <sighs> I'm still kind of annoyed that I'm late because we're selfish, right? Children are selfish. Nobody teaches kids how to lie. Nobody, you know, my two little girls are constantly, they're in a, um, uh, tug-of-war phase right now. Every time one of them is holding something else, some, holding any object in the entire world, it becomes a tug-of-war. Nobody taught them how to do that, right? It's in their nature. They're selfish. We're all, we're all like that. And in that fallen condition, in our selfishness, one of the ways that shows up is we don't like people to tell us what to do. We don't like it. We don't like authority. That includes the authority of Jesus. And so there's this major temptation for Christians in the West, especially, with our individualism, is we have this sort of faith where we tell Jesus, you can be 50% of the Lord in my life. I'm going to give you half of it. I'm going to let you be a halfway sort of a Lord. That means he gets to be in charge as long as whatever he wants me to do is what I already want to do anyway. And in the other 50%, uh, I'm going to go with the popular cultural narrative. I'm going to go with whatever selfish thing I want to do. Let me give you a few ways this works, right? Um, I wrote some examples down here. Just things where we tell Jesus, you know what, maybe the way that you want me to do this is not perfect. Time management was, is a big one that I've seen as a pastor. I've been a pastor now with my 38, so uh, 18 years. The way people manage their time, we're, we live in a culture where it's just like work, 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 and work, and then work some more. 
You know I mean? You've got to climb that ladder. You've got to make those bucks. God knew that's what we would do. So he said, hey, I want you to take a day to take care of yourselves and to renew yourself spiritually and to spend time with the people of God. And a lot of us go, eh, you know, I love Jesus, but not enough to do that for real, you know. And so I'm not really going to take care of myself. I'm not going to manage my time in a way where I'm resting. I'm going to let Jesus be a half a Lord in my life. I'm going to give him all these other things, but I'm not going to give him this thing. Or um, another one I wrote down, I have a lot of these, but I don't have enough time to go through them all. Um, just like at our church, we talk about our Pabst Blue Ribbon Outreach Pathway. I've told you guys about this before. I love this. So Pabst Blue Ribbon, you know, is that nasty hipster beard that they drink at Dolores Park. You know, they're probably over there drinking it right now. Um, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like a dollar for six of them, you know. And um, so we took that, we made an acronym. So it's of our missional living. So we pray for people. We ask them about their lives. We bless them in ways nobody else would. We share our own stories with them. And then we talk to them about the gospel, P-A-B-S-T. Now, what I was talking to my folks this morning about this, what I was saying was it's very easy with the missional living, the outreach, the evangelism kind of stuff to tell the Lord, you know what, I like that stuff, but not enough to actually do it. You know, if it happens on accident, I'm all for it. But I'm not going to make changes in my life, and I'm not going to be intentional about it. And then you read the whole New Testament, and these guys were constantly doing, you know, this is not what God wants from us. And so we tell Jesus again, you know what, I'm going to let you be sort of a halfway Lord in my life. The last example I'll give you is grace versus works. Right, this is a big one. We do this all the time, don't we? Where Jesus says, hey, I died for you, the end, <laughs> right? I mean, not, you know, there's sanctification stuff, but as far as your salvation goes, that's the end of it. Jesus did it. He did the work. You're saved. That's it. And then we go, you know what? That's true, but now I'm going to do all this stuff so you'll save me even better. I'm going to try to earn more of your love. I'm going to work for you. And, you know, it's like telling Jesus what you did wasn't really enough. And we tell Jesus, I don't really believe what you're telling me. I'm going to let you sort of, in that area of my life, I'm only going to give you some authority. I'm not going to let you have all the authority. And so when we find ourselves, right, on this side of eternity, we're constantly going to be having this temptation to, to have all these different areas of our lives because we're fallen and sinful, where we tell the Lord, I'm going to give you half of this. And we're going to be fighting this with our sin nature as long as we're here. And pretending like we don't fight this isn't helping anybody. And so what do we need to do then? We need to do what the Sanhedrin guys did, actually. We need to go to Jesus, and we need to ask him, what gives you the authority to be the Lord in my life? Right? What right do you have to tell me what to do with my Sundays? What right do you have to tell me what to do with my time? To tell me what to do to be saved? The answer is actually in the parable. Right? What gives Jesus the right to do that? What gives him the right to be the Lord, to have this authority? It's he's the son sent by God the Father. That's the only person in the history of the world that you would want to have this kind of authority in your life, is the son of God sent by God the Father. And we don't give him this authority in our lives and the honor that's due him despite the fact that he was murdered and he died. But we give him that authority and that honor because of his death. Because of what he did on the cross, he has earned the right to be that authority in our lives. His death is the greatest thing that's ever been done for you. No one has ever earned your love or your respect or a place in your life more. Right? And so he's the only one that deserves to be the center. Not other worldly narratives, not politics, not selfish ambition. None of that stuff is going to fulfill you as a center the way that Jesus does. And so I'm completely out of time. I have like a little application here. I have two points of application. I'm going to do this way faster than what's in my notes. All right. So then how you get to the point where you go, okay, Jesus, I, do, I see. I want you to be the Lord in my life. I want you to have authority in my life. How do we do it? How does that actually work? There's two things. There's two ways that this works. You've got to let Jesus speak into your life. The first way is through Scripture. We want to be people of the Word. Right? You know the verse from 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture changes our lives. We need to be people, like, soaked in Scripture. And so here's an application question you can take home and think about this. Does Scripture bring joy into your life? Not just information. Not, oh, now I know where the Sanhedrin comes from. 
Moses had this thing, and you know, that's interesting. But like, does the idea of this, the gospel story that we read in scripture bring, does it light up your life? And if not, you need to stop and ask the Lord why. The second way that Jesus gets to be an authority in our life is with church family, right? You guys read the verse every week, right? Ephesians 4 something. What's the thing? What, what kind of church do we want to be? You know, and then you guys read the whole thing, right? You gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. You know, there's sections in the scripture that talks about in the New Testament, the body of Christ. Here's the idea. We want to be the kind of people who set up our lives so that other church people can speak into them and can speak the words of the gospel into our lives in a way that we can take it home and pray about it and think about it and go, you know what? I think Jesus is trying to correct me here. And every part of my fallen and sinful nature hates this idea of somebody else in church telling me what to do, speaking into my life, giving me this kind of advice. I like to be independent. And so the last two questions here, uh, are you, or the last one, I'll just give you one question. What walls do you have in your life set up so that people in this community can't get into your life? Right? Because those are kind of the two main ways, the two main things that Jesus has given us to exercise authority in our lives because he's earned it, right? He's given us the scriptures and it's this wonderful gift and he's given us each other, which is another wonderful gift. And any church that is obsessed with scripture and is obsessed with each other is going to be pretty good off. It doesn't matter how big it is. It doesn't matter if there's only a couple people there, right? It's, it's going to be a place where God is exercising, where the Lord is exercising his authority in our lives. And that's the kind of people we want to be. Amen? All right, let's pray. Sorry, I went over my time a little bit. <laughs> let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for each other. And we thank you that you are the, the Lord who um, has earned his way into our lives. That through your death and resurrection, Lord, that you have proven that you are the only one worthy of honor. And you are the one worthy of, of praise you are the one worthy to be called King and Lord. And Lord, we confess that, you know, we fight, we constantly fight our sin nature. And our sin nature wins more than we would like it to. And one of the ways that shows up is in our, our bucking your authority. In our telling you, I don't want you to be part of this part of my life. I want to compartmentalize. I want to put you over here. And I want to be independent over here. But Lord, I thank you that the, the story of the gospel and the grace that we find at the foot of the cross is, is big enough to cover even those sins and that our salvation is final. So help us, Lord, as a people to just lean into that truth, to trust you more and more each day, to give you more and more of our lives each day. And we look forward to the day, Lord, when we shut our eyes in death and open them up and we spend eternity with you and your people where you exercise perfect authority in our lives and you know, we don't have to put up with this awful sin nature. So we thank you for the hope that we have in that day. We thank you for the wonderful Savior that you are. We don't deserve anything that you've given us. Amen. <laughs>